Right. Good morning. Man, wasn't that good? Wasn't that beautiful? That was awesome. Thank you all for leading us in worship. And it is good to be here this morning. Everybody having a good weekend so far? A lot of fun in the Smith household. My daughter turned eight this week. That's crazy. I turned to my dad yesterday and said, man, we double that and she's going to be 16. And I'm not, uh-uh, I'm not ready for that. So it was a great weekend though, and it was a great opportunity to to celebrate my daughter and uh, just to, to enjoy life. Hopefully you all are having those, those blessings in the midst of this crazy pandemic and you're getting an opportunity to, to really uh, find those, those sweet moments along the way. I do want to just provide a, a couple of, of thoughts on uh, how we're approaching things here at the church and just a reminder of, of ways that we're trying to keep the channels of communication open with you all. Is We know that you're likely to have questions in terms of how things are going, what What's our approach? What's our philosophy? And we want to hear from you, and we're trying to create numerous avenues to accomplish that. Uh, I know that the deacons have been reaching out and and calling the membership. We know that uh, a lot of the ministerial staff is trying to connect with discipleship groups. And so if you're not at a D group, this is a great opportunity to get connected in one. I want to continue to emphasize that. If you are in one, uh, be looking for an opportunity to hear from a minister so you can uh, voice your prayer concerns, ask your questions. We want to be able to do that uh, and, and make ourselves readily available. If you ever have questions, you can send me an email directly as well. You know, a couple of things that we're thinking about that, that maybe you want to know more about or we would love to get your opinion on and, and some feedback for is uh, several weeks ago, we had uh, the ELC open back up, our early learning center on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And uh, it's been a uh, a modest enrollment, but it's given them a great opportunity to kind of figure out protocols for childcare because that's, that's a reality that we're all facing as schools get ready to try to figure out how to reopen. And so it's a question that we've had is how, how could we do that again on a Sunday morning? And, and would that be something that would be uh, advantageous for some of the young families? And so if you have questions about that, thoughts about that, uh, please reach out to us as we are looking to hopefully start providing that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but we obviously want to continue to have an ongoing dialogue with the church family about the best way to do this. And so uh, just, it's just a reminder that it's, it's a challenging time to figure out uh, some of these things that used to be so normal. But we so appreciate um, your support, your encouragement, your, your wisdom, your suggestions, and just your spirit. You guys have been incredible uh, the whole way through it and, and knowing that everybody has different levels of comfort level right now is understandable but we want to continue to do this journey together uh, and, and in the midst of it all as we prepare today I, I just want to remind each and every one of us what we're here for you know I, I think a lot of times we we go through um, the the nuances of culture right now and we start thinking about how how are we going to go out to eat how are we going to do school how are we going to do church and and we get lost in all the different nuances that the pandemic has created that we kind of lose sight at times of just the heart of what we've been called to do. Um, we're here today, be it here physically or here virtually, to celebrate the resurrected Christ. Amen? And that changes everything. That gives you the hope that is greater than any pandemic, right? That all of us know that, that we're broken. Right? The reason we're susceptible to disease, the reason it even exists is because this world is not as it should be. But God in his great love for us saw us in that brokenness and said, I'm going to heal them, I'm going to rescue them. And he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ. He showed us the perfect way to love, showed us the perfect way to find peace, the perfect way towards hope. And in Christ, we find the perfect sacrifice that is the forgiveness for our sins and our brokenness. Right? His death on the cross is what heals us. His death 
on the cross is why we sing worthy is his name. And it is the death on the cross that gives us the hope that death itself has been defeated because we know that he resurrected from the grave and gives us a reason to sing. That's why we're here. And so let's celebrate that gospel this morning. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for just the opportunity to worship you. We thank you for this gospel. We, we embrace the complexities of the day in anticipation that we will be able to find um, the opportunity to rediscover what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so help us uh, find the wisdom that we need as we try to make decisions and go throughout life. But God, may we never lose focus on what truly drives us and why we gather and why we celebrate and why we consider ourselves to be believers. And so God, may those truths and may the power of the gospel um, once again just infect our heart this morning, may it open our minds, and may your spirit be thick in our midst so that we can once again be changed by your living and active word. Help guide us and lead us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so like my hair has gotten so long, y'all. This is COVID hair, okay, because I haven't had a haircut it's since the pandemic. So I'm trying, just hasn't worked out for me yet. So my microphone is like really struggling right now, so I apologize for that. I'm, I'm hoping it'll stay still. Um, but anyway, I was going to start out today by asking you if you have any uh, words that whenever you hear them, they just instinctively create this resistant emotion. You know what I'm talking about? Like um, words that just kind of make you bristle a little bit. I know to, to kind of give you an example, maybe a safe example would be with my children. Um, anytime they hear the words bedtime, bath time, it's like something within them goes, no, no, I don't think so, right? And they're just resistant to that idea. Other words might be like laundry, okay? Dishes, cleaning, traffic, right? We all have these words that when we hear them, we kind of have this this sense of resistance. Probably two of the words at the top of my list would be words like longhorn and Aggie, right? I don't like those words, and I'm resistant to those words and everything that they stand for, okay? So we have, we have these words in our lives that when we hear them, there's this kind of emotion, there's this reaction to them, and today, we're gonna look at a passage of scripture that I believe kind of creates that emotion, right? There's, there's gonna be this word that that kind of gives that sense of resistance that a lot of times we bristle against it because it's, it's kind of counterintuitive to so many of the humanistic impulses we have as well as the cultural narratives that we're surrounded by, right? The mantras and the values of our culture speak against this. And so what is this word that we're gonna be talking about and great focus on today but the word submit, right? It's a, it's a word that more often than not when you hear it, you kind of have a tendency to be resistant to it. And yet it's a very important word for us to understand the theme of everything that Paul is about to dive into in these, these next few passages in the letter of Ephesians, right? This idea of submission. And so it's important for us to, to dive deep into it today. We're just going to look at one primary verse because of the way in which it's going to help set the tone for, for what's to follow. But I really want us to take the time to look into the complexities of this word so that we don't go into these next few weeks with that spirit of resistance that can so easily trip us up and miss what is truly just a powerful and beautiful section of scripture. 
right? And so we're gonna, we're gonna focus in on that, and my hope is that what we're gonna discover or rediscover or remind ourselves is that this is really the posture of what it means to be a believer. This is the example that was set forth for us in Christ, is this posture of submission, right? That, that what we have modeled for us in Jesus is the spirit of the Savior who offers the prayer, not my will, but yours be done. And so how do we follow suit? How do we live a life in a similar capacity? That's what we're going to be looking at today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5, right? We've been going through this journey in the second half of this letter that has given us all these different contrasts, right, of all the different things, life to death, old self, new self. And for the last several weeks, we've been looking at these descriptions of, of what it means to be children of light. And we've seen all these different instructions and these uh, exhortations and, and now we just continue in that that series and we're going to get one verse that is really going to be pretty critical as a transitional verse from what we've already read over the last several weeks and what we're going to be reading for the next several weeks so just one verse today chapter 5 verse 21 in the book of ephesians submit to one another out of reverence for christ let me say it again submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, so there, there are three distinct elements of this verse. We're going to at least hit on all three of those, but really try to emphasize the, the first half of it through most of the morning. This idea of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. But before we dive into that teaching, let's make sure that we understand kind of the, the function that this verse is playing in this particular part of the passage, because it is, in some respects, acting as a transitional verse, kind of tying up a little bit of what we've been discussing as well as setting that theme for what's following. And so if you think about what we talked about last week, we talked about being filled with the Spirit, right? And what, what that passage was showing us, what that verse was telling us, was that to be filled with the Spirit is going to help you conduct yourself in a manner of wisdom, right? To, to be as wise, not as unwise. How you know to make the most of, out of every opportunity is to be filled with the Spirit. And yet at the same time, being filled with the Spirit leads to worship, because when you are filled with the Spirit, you're going to start speaking to one another in hymns and songs and spiritual songs. And you're going to make music in your heart to the Lord. And so we talked last week how being filled with the Spirit of God leads to wisdom and worship. But what we're going to see with this verse is that there's another element of what happens with being filled with the Spirit of God. That being filled with the Spirit of God also leads to a life of submission. Right? And so that's a pretty... Pretty incredible thing to think about, because a lot of times when we talk about the Spirit of God, we'll gravitate to the fruits of the Spirit that you read about in, in Galatians, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those sorts of things. Or we'll talk about the gifts of the Spirit that you find in 1 Corinthians, right? We'll talk about tongues and prophecy and all these other ways that the Spirit may manifest itself. And we often will kind of overlook or, or miss the more subtle references like what we just read in Ephesians that tells us to be filled with the Spirit of God is to have a life that is filled with wisdom and worship and submission. That's really powerful, right? Last year, uh, to celebrate our 90th anniversary as a church, we put that question in front of ourselves over and over again. Is my life filled with the Spirit? Am I in step? with the Spirit of God. And, and maybe this is a way for us to revisit that question and give ourselves somewhat of a marker to help answer that question, right? Is my life filled with wisdom? Am I compelled to worship? Am I living a life of submission, right? So it's a very critical verse. And where, where Paul's taking us with this transitional verse is not just saying this is what it's like to be filled with the Spirit, but, but now I'm gonna show you some of the most obvious ways that that manifests itself. Right? And, and so it's not just that it's going to impact 
your individual life, but your relationships, all of your relationships. And to make that point, Paul is going to draw our attention to some of the most obvious relationships that we have, the relationships within the home. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at those relationships, husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters, all these relationships that took place in the household. And there's some complexities to those conversations. And, and as a teaser, I will tell you, I'm hopeful that over, over the next couple of weeks, you'll enjoy some, some different approaches. I'm, I'm even hoping that I can have a, a, somebody help me out with next week's messages. And, and so we'll see how that all transpires. But the reality is, is that they are so complex, some of those relationships, even the ones that we know in the home, that if we miss the tone that's being set here in 521, that we're really going to complicate our ability to understand what follows. So, so today is a critical opportunity for us to really get the context that we need. All right, so, so let's start with understanding the word, submit. What does it even mean? All right, well, if you're going to define it, uh, the, the, the simplest definition would be to subordinate yourself to someone else based on their inherent qualities or position of influence, All right? So, so that kind of gives us an understanding of why we often are resistant to it because the idea of subordination is not something we tend to aspire to. Right, so like if you were to think back, when was the last time somebody told you to submit or, or subordinate yourself? Not submit a paper, submit an application, but like when was the last time you were in a situation where <clears throat> that was expected of you? Right, that you would subordinate yourself to someone else. I, I don't know how many examples you have. Maybe several of you have numerous examples. Um, maybe you have few, but my, my sense is that whether you have numerous or few, tend, uh, most of the times we tend to not enjoy those moments, right? They, they challenge us, they're, they're sometimes difficult to embrace, they, they make us feel a little less than comfortable, and so we need to kind of begin to ask ourselves, why is that, right? What, what is it that makes us resistant to this idea of subordination? And I think there's two things we need to consider. It's a human problem, and it's a cultural problem, all right? So let's, let's briefly consider those as best we can. Human problem. Part of what we're talking about here is going to take us back to creation itself, right? God creates everything in this beautiful, orderly way, right? And, and it all has this intricate design and this relationship uh, with one another. And there is somewhat of a hierarchy, for lack of a better term. And what he puts at the top of this creation is, is mankind. And he entrusts creation to mankind. He says, rule over it, subdue it, have dominion, right? And he entrusts this freedom and this privilege and this autonomy to, to mankind except for one thing, right? There's one thing you don't get to rule over and that's me, right? And so I, I'm going to set the standard, right? You're, you're going to subordinate yourself to me. You can have all this fruit, but you can't eat this over here. And if you go against this order, if you refuse to see my inherent value and my position of authority, that's going to cost you your life. And so the, the temptation that comes in is one that says, oh, you don't need to submit. No, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. And it was that temptation to no longer submit ourselves, but to elevate ourselves, right, to, to gain status that ignited the heart of sin. Right, and that becomes pride. That's something that every single human heart carries, pride. Right, and so the moment we, we hear submit, that pride kind of pushes back and goes, no, 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 no. I, I want to be on equal playing field. I want equal status because it's the heart of sin. So it's human dilemma. 
So we already combat it from that standpoint. But we also, I would say, have a very um, unique and, and, and very challenging context for us living in this culture and in this society because of the way in which we have begun to function as a people and the way that we begin to understand community and relationships within our society as well. So, so let's, let's dive into this for a little bit. So a couple of years ago, I was asked to teach on Philippians chapter 2 and the focus on humility. And, and really, humility, I think, works well with the subject of submission because they are very complementary, if not somewhat interchangeable. Because if you submit, it's going to foster a humble attitude. At the same time, it requires humility to be able to submit, right? So the two kind of go hand in hand. And so as I was reading and preparing for this week's message and I was looking at this, I kept coming back to Philippians 2, which we're going to read a little bit later. And as I was reading through it, I, it kind of reminded me of that time that I had a chance to teach on it. And I went back and I consulted my notes. And it reminded me of this incredible book that I read uh, the first time I had a chance to teach on, on the subject of humility. It's a, it's a book written by uh, David Brooks, and it's called The Road to Character. Uh, David Brooks is one of my favorite authors. You've heard me talk about him before. He's, he, to me, is, is really his gift is being able to assess our culture and our society and, and diagnose it in a very insightful and, and uh, a very uh, unique perspective. And so I love reading his, his articles, his books, and, and part of what this, this book, The Road to Character, was really driving in on was the subject of humility and, and really how we have shifted in our culture. And so I, everything, the reason I'm putting that out there is because everything I'm about to share with you from a cultural standpoint is really gleaned from Brooks's research in that book. And so I want to give credit where credit is due, but I think it was, it's very insightful and helps inform our conversation today. So part of what Brooks points out is that for most of human history, we functioned as a society with some form of moral realism, right? And by that, what he means is, is that there is a sense that we understood our own sin and our own brokenness. We were realistic about our own morality, moral realism, right? And so what you did is you, you knew that yourself couldn't be trusted. You knew that you were, you were flawed. You had flaws. You had mistakes. You had all these different tendencies. This is what you see in the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, right? Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God. Wash me of all my sins. Cleanse me from all my iniquities, right? That's the heart of the psalmist. That's the biblical narrative that says, this is a realistic picture of my morality. I'm broken. And with that mentality, for much of human history, the, the human knew you can't trust yourself. You, you aren't the source of what's good and what's right. You have to look outside yourself to find those things. You have to look for uh, truth in other institutions or other things. But don't look within. And look at how opposite it is today. Don't trust the institution. Trust only yourself. And so how did that shift take place? Well, part of it, according to Brooks, occurs in the 18th century when we go from moral realism to moral um, romanticism, right? And so now we kind of have this romantic idea of morality, and you have philosophers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau who starts promoting inner goodness, right? And there's this inner quality, and, and this begins to take shape in our country with the self-esteem movement, and, and that's kind of how Brooks uh, identifies it. That really begins to take shape, the seeds of it being planted in the 40s, and 50s, then it begins to, to develop in the 60s and 70s, and now is in full bloom. Okay, and so, so here's how he describes how it takes root in our culture. He says, think about 1945, right? You're, you're coming off the heels of the Second World War, and for that generation, 
They had seen another world war. They've gone through a Great Depression, and so much of life and existence in the American experience at that point had been a life of self-sacrifice, right, of going without, of of doom and gloom and, and all these different challenges, sacrificing for the greater good, for the common good, and it was hard, and it was overwhelming. And so as a result, the the culture and society is at large was primed for a message of positivity, was primed for a message of self-liberation, right? And so, for example, 1946 comes along, along and Rabbi uh, Liebman writes this book called Peace of Mind. And in this book, you start seeing these ideas of uh, uh, self-happiness, inner uh, trusting your inner impulses, things along those lines, and, and finding this inner peace, and it becomes very well received, and it spends 58 weeks on the bestseller list. 1952, Norman Vincent Peale writes The Power of Positive Thinking, right? And here are the ideas, ignore these negative attitudes and give yourself pep talks to your own self-success, and it spends 98 weeks on the bestseller list, right? So, so culture is buying into the message. And then you have this psychologist, Carl Rogers, who comes along, and he begins to really drive it home in the world of psychology, right? It's, it's all about self-actualization, self-achievement, trusting your self-impulses. And all of a sudden, that whole self-esteem movement is born, and it begins to shape HR departments and schools and curriculums. Now, listen, Brooks is quick to point out a lot of this was good, right? Some of it was necessary because there were certain segments of society uh, women, minorities, uh, the, the marginalized, the poor, who had been given messages of inferiority for so long that they needed to find some self-liberation. They needed self-worth and self-value. So this isn't like all of it was bad, but what happened was we lost balance, right? And so now everything becomes about self-actualization. So what happens? Now it becomes moral autonomy, right? Now I get to trust what's right, what's wrong. I determine it for myself because my inner voice is the most important. And when all of a sudden you have moral autonomy, what what happens? The shift occurs, right? Now the institutions are the things that are not trustworthy. Myself is the only thing that's trustworthy. So now we live in the manifestation of this. Now when we see the manifestation of sin in our society, what do we do? We blame the institution, we, we blame the government, we blame the church, we blame the business, whatever it is. And should we begin to actually level an attack towards an individual, think of the defense mechanisms that emerge. Oh, you can't tell me how to live. You can't tell me what's right and wrong. Why? Because of this whole veneration of the self, right? And so, so what happens? You begin to create that message of self-achievement, self actualization and so we begin to develop resume virtues according to brooks right now it's a meritocracy and if everything is about the self and self actualization the way in which i find value is through my own success through my own achievements and all the merits that i can accumulate for myself so here's a great example honor society how do you get an honor society today grades right used to be honor meant something completely different and was about your character, not your academic achievement, right? So we, we have this shift, and so now we cloak ourselves in all these subtle gestures of our self-actualization. 
right? The way we dress, the car we drive, the job we have, the title we possess, all these different things that subconsciously give us a sense of self-worth and tell others, look at me, right? It's not, I need to submit to you. It's, oh, look at what you should be submitting to in me, right? And so we parent that way. We, we, we start emphasizing to our children how they need to be accomplished in their successes at school with fine arts, with sports, with athletics, whatever it is. We, we then begin to dictate our relationships with this whole set of mindset, right? We we, especially in the world of social media, now we have these devices that allow us to be the center of our own little universe, right? And we can create our profiles and we can determine our self-worth with a quantifiable measurement of likes and shares and, and we can gather influence so that we can just tell the world what we have accomplished and what we think is important and what we think is right and how our voice is the best so that we can get you to submit to us. And so this is the world we live in, and then you walk into church on some Sunday morning and somebody tells you to submit, and in your mind you go, uh-uh, no, I don't think so. Convince me. Because this is the context we live. It's a human problem and it's a cultural problem. And what we miss and what we need to be reminded of is that the gospel is not self-actualization. The gospel is not self-reliance. The gospel is self-denial. And that's what we begin to see with this word submission. This is why Philippians 2 becomes such a beautiful complement to this passage. Let me, let me read you Philippians 2 this morning. It's another way just to define this term and for us to get a sense of it. So in chapter 2, verse 1, here's how Paul writes to the letter uh, in the church of Philippi. He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in one of mine. Here it is. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Submit. Humility. It's a beautiful description. It's what was modeled for us in Jesus, wasn't it? Think about Jesus and how many times he put the needs of others above himself, right? That he'd be going on a place to, to pray or moving forward to another village and the crowds would storm around him. And what moved him? Obligation, a schedule, notoriety. No, what moved him was compassion, right? He saw their needs and so he stopped and he fed them and he healed them, and he taught them. Think about the way that he knelt before his very own followers, and he washed their feet. And he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Think about the ultimate expression of submission when he was nailed to the cross, considering the needs of the world above his own. And that selfless act of submission was fueled by the prayer, not my will, but yours be done. This is the example that we have set for us in Christ. And so when we hear the word submit, we shouldn't bristle, we shouldn't resist, we should cherish it. And we should look for every opportunity to practice it. All right, so that's part one, submit. All right, now the second 
part of this verse is equally important, right? Because what I think will happen is that once we get comfortable with the gospel and receive the gospel, we, we come in here and we'll acknowledge, man, I'm all about submitting to Jesus. Man, I'll submit to God. I can do that. Yes, he's good. He's sovereign. I'm going to sing to him, whatever. But the relationship piece is still very difficult. And that's where it becomes very tricky. And so look at what Paul says very next. Submit what? To who? To one another. Right? What we have described here is not just, hey, get your life right with Jesus. Right? Get, get your, right, your life right with the creator. This is, this is about how you guys are going to interact with one another. This is mutual submission. That's what's being discussed here. And this is very critical for us to understand, especially in anticipation of the, the messages that we're going to have over the next few weeks. Because here's, here's how you could read 521, right? How you could read it as, as just as a preview into all these relationships, because we all know we're going to find these relationships in life, in society, at work, and at home, and family, whatever, where there's kind of this, this order, right? And, and people have a certain responsibility that's different than ours. And so Part of what people might do is look at verse 21 and say, find your place and get in line, right? And so, so if you have a position of authority and you don't have a position of authority, those that don't, man, you just got to submit to those that do, right? And so just fall in line. And so wives, submit to husbands, children, submit to parents, slaves, submit to masters, fall in line. Now, the problem with that is that when you read uh, this passage that way, then you rob verse 21 of the force with which it's written. Right, Because that opens up and has been used in a manner that can be uh, abusive and coercive and dominating. And that's not at all what Christ intended or what he modeled. Right? So while we have to acknowledge there are some of these unique relationships, there, there is this, this order and the, these roles that we're going to play. What's being talked about here is mutual submission that eliminates any capacity for coercion or abuse or oppression in any form in any way. That's what verse 21 is saying. Everyone submit to one another. It's like that annoying picture. This is what the church should be and our relationship should be. It's like that annoying picture where everybody goes to open the door for each other and it's like, no, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. Right? Like you should just constantly try to outserve one another. Mutual submission. Right? It's about relationships where we constantly come to one another in that spirit of submission and humility. Now, the third part of this is the motivation, right? If, if we can embrace the concept and understand why it's important, and then we can understand that it truly is relational and it is supposed to be mutual, the thing that, that Paul then gives us as a motivation to set the tone for this section is that we do this out of reverence for Christ. And I think this is equally important, but also uh, valuable for us to give some thorough analysis to because I think reverence is another word that maybe we vacillate with and don't always know the best way how to understand it, right? So reverence at its core, the, the term really means fear. That's, that's kind of the root word there, phobos, which is where we get our idea of phobia, right? And so it's fear. Now, let's be clear. We're not talking about being afraid of condemnation. We're not talking about being afraid of hell, Right? Because in Jesus, we have assurance, we have uh, the victory. Like we, that's not the sort of fear. Even, even what it says in 1 Peter, I believe, where it says, perfect love drives out fear because we know the love of Christ is going to triumph over any condemnation. Right? But there is this fear of his awesomeness, of his sovereignty, of his power, of his strength, this respect that we need to carry. This is 
reverence, okay? And I think what, what tends to happen for us, if you're like me, is we try to travel down this road of reverence, and the problem is, is that there's a ditch on either side of that road that we often fall into, right? So on, on one hand, we fall into the ditch of formality, and reverence becomes something about being formal, right? That you have to have a certain posture, right? There's certain behavior that is acceptable and unacceptable in church or in your relationship with God, right? So like for me, I know uh, I grew up and I was kind of told, maybe not directly, but just kind of learned through the years, don't clap in church. Mm -mm. It's in a concert. You don't clap in church, right? I'd wear sandals to church and man, if I just slipped them off for a second, I'd get a look from my grandmother. Mm -mm. You're in the Lord's house. You know what I mean? And you had to dress a certain way. Like, this is the formality. that I was taught, listen, there's nothing wrong with that. But where it becomes tricky and where it does become overemphasized is when all of a sudden we begin to think that certain emotions and responses need to be snuffed out or you have to put on your Sunday best in order to be able to worship. Well, what about those that don't have Sunday best? Right? Or what about the fact that the Bible says, make a joyful noise, clap your hands? Is that irreverent? Right? That's where we begin to lose a sense. When we make formality about a posture and a conduct that can be exclusive to others and diminish our response to the gospel, that's not reverence. It's not reverence at all. Right? And yet at the same time, we can travel down this road and fall into the other ditch where we overemphasize the intimacy that we have with Christ. Right? So now Jesus is my buddy. He's my friend. And I can be casual with this guy. Right? I can, I can kind of live however I want to live and do whatever I want to do because Jesus and I were cool, you know? I mean, we hang out and I can be really casual in my whole approach to it. And what we forget is that Jesus is king, right? Right, He's, he is your friend, he is intimate, there is a close relationship, but let's not lose sight of the fact that when he returns, he returns as a rider on a great white horse whose eyes are blazing fire. He is your king and he demands and deserves your respect, right? That's reverence. So the best way I know how to try to travel down this road and avoid those ditches that we all tend to fall into is to somehow merge this beautiful tension of always being overwhelmed by the great love and the great authority of Jesus and never losing sight of either one, right? That reverence is being overwhelmed by the love and the authority of Jesus Christ and always having those things in our hearts and in our mind. And that's how we can maintain this sort of reverence, right? That we are able to continually always be swept away in the love that has saved us from sin and has brought us close as an intimate loved one and yet also see the Jesus that commands and compels and sins because he is our king. And if we can do that, that is what's so critical. Now let me connect it to verse 21 now that we have a better understanding of the term. Right, verse 21, part of what it's teaching us is one of the most irreverent things we can do is to fail to submit to one another. That's being irreverent. Not how you dress, right now, not how you conduct yourself. What is irreverent is when you begin to elevate yourself at, to a greater level than others, right? True reverence, according to 521, is submitting to one another. That's 
the posture of reverence, one of humility and a life of submission. And so that's what we're going to begin to figure out. Man, how do we live that out practically? How does that shape the relationships at home and beyond? And that's what we'll be able to discuss in greater detail over the next several weeks. Here's how I want to close this morning. Here's how I want us to try to just at least embrace this verse today. So part of what I want us to see is that this is not just a, a word of instruction for you as an individual, though it is that, right? Though it is hopefully an opportunity for us to, to grow individualistically, this is also an opportunity for us to remind ourselves of what we should be known, as a, known of as a body of believers, right? This is the, the description of the church, right? This is what the church should be known for. A church shouldn't be known for all the things that she wants to stand against. A church shouldn't be known for its architecture and its nice building and nice location. A church shouldn't be known for the fact that we can fill up your events and your schedules or, or come in and tune in for us one day a week and we're going to be able to entertain you. No, what a church should be known for is something far greater because God's plan is for the church to reveal his hope to the world. He wants to mobilize brothers and sisters to be that light in darkness. And the best way we can do that is by creating an atmosphere and a posture where we are willing to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because what happens when we do that? You know what happens when we do that? When we submit to one another, we restore value to the neighbor. <laughs> That's what we do. Right? We, we restore value to the neighbor. When we see the neighbor, be they within these walls or beyond them, and we see that they are hurting and they are wounded because of our love for them, and we consider their needs greater than our own, and we are willing to put our desires aside, we are able to walk in and say, hey, let me help you, let me heal you. Right? When we see a neighbor who is hungry, we feed them. When we see a neighbor who is wounded and oppressed, we come by and we encourage and we uplift and we give them hope. That's what submitting to one another does. It restores value to the neighbor. And the reason we should do this is because Christ has restored value to each and every one of you. Because he was willing to consider your needs above his own. And so we follow his example and we become a body of believers that champion this voice that says we are not here to be served but to serve. And if we live our lives like that, then our prayer and our life will join his and we'll become a strong chorus of voices that declare not our will but his be done. May it be so for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we are grateful for the example that we have in Christ, someone who is willing to personify a life of submission. And so, Father, if there's anything within any of us that is resistant to that idea, that wants to push back on what it means to consider the interests of others above our own, God, I pray that we would be able to confess that and surrender it to you today. I pray that you would help us to truly embody a life of humility in a way that brings you glory, that brings you truth, that brings light to the hope that we have in Christ, God. And for a world that needs to have value restored to the neighbor, God, may your church be the one that leads the way. Help us to be uh, your light in a dark place. Help us be filled with the Spirit and a people that are continually practicing wisdom and worship and submission, God, 
in a way that brings glory to Christ. So Father, may this verse today be a mantra for our lives and for us as a church. May we submit to one another out of reverence for your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen and amen.